0: I was born in 1954, which is actually when Lord of the Rings, the first uh, few books of Lord of the Rings, were also being published. Uh, When I was a teenager, to say that they had an effect on me would be an understatement. That effect stayed and has stayed for most of my life. Uh, The movies came along 20 years ago. That's when they started. So there's a lot to absorb, a lot to chew over. Uh, There's a new Amazon project in the works. The legacy of J.R. Tolkien lingers on and on. We have a lot to say about the man, the books, the movies, and the homoerotic subtext that everybody has always noticed.
1: Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Hartford HealthCare recently celebrated the opening of the Ridge Recovery Center in Wyndham. Christy Scott, Vice President of Clinical Operations, describes this new state-of-the-art destination for healing.
2: Individuals will come if they're suffering from substance use disorder and get individualized treatment. They can stay up to three to four weeks and receive family therapy, individual therapy, group therapy, and lots of other holistic care like yoga, trail walking, acupuncture. So it's going to be a great place for people to come and heal.
1: For those seeking recovery, finding it close to home can sometimes be challenging.
2: Many individuals traveled to Florida and other states that have more treatment centers, so we're hoping by doubling our capacity at Hartford Healthcare, the individuals can stay in their home state with their family and support systems close by.
1: To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health.
0: So if that already creates some kind of Pavlovian reaction and you, you already know what we're talking about, uh, we are talking about Lord of the Rings, uh, the entire legendarium also, as they say, of J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, so give me, I don't know, 180 seconds. I think I can do this. Just give you, give you my little personal story. So in, sometime in the late 60s, uh, like a lot of people who were sort of hippie adjacent uh, I was a high school student at the time at a boys' school, and a friend of mine, Bruce Muller, was—I think he was reading The Hobbit, and I was kind of making fun of him. I didn't know what it was exactly, but he was telling me what it was, and then I was making fun of him. And then somehow or other, he got me to read it, and I was enchanted by it, uh, and then got started on The Lord of the Rings books, uh, and which had been published about 15 years earlier. And to say that I was transported, well, like millions and millions of readers, I was transported. And I read them many times after that and then got, got kind of more selective. I would just read all the parts that I liked and skipped over the parts that I, that I didn't like, but kind of made my way through it probably five or six times over the years uh, in that very selective way. And then towards the end, <laughs> towards the end of my, my really most obsessive period and well before the movies, I would read one chapter, which was the, one of the last, essentially the end of the book called The Scouring. Of the Shire, when the hobbits come back and they've acquired this whole new skill set uh, and things are in, in, in moral disrepair in their home. Um, so, this all culminates in a day that must have been um, somewhere around 1999. Um, so, there's no movies out. Um, I've read the books a long time ago and I'm hiking with two 10 year old boys, one of whom is my son. And we're in the White Mountains, and the whole idea is to hike hike up 4,000 feet to get over the Alpine Line so you can see where the the huts are and stuff. And, and, you know, with 10-year-old boys, hiking is kind of boring. Climbing uh, up a trail is kind of boring. And so mutiny is always a possibility. So I began to tell them the story of Lord of the Rings, which— to my surprise, I remembered in great detail, and of course, I was sort of Shahrazad. At any point, if I ran out of story, they would murder me. Uh, but uh, but it worked, and they were completely enchanted by it. And I was unsurprised when the movies finally did come out that everybody else was enchanted too. Uh, and so that was tw- the movies were twenty years ago. Uh, we are going to talk about uh, all. The Manifestations uh, of the Work of J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, And we're going to start with John Garth, uh, the author of The Worlds of J.R.R. Tolkien, The Places That Inspired Middle-Earth and Tolkien and the Great War, uh, among other books. Welcome to our show.
3: Well, uh, hello. Well, thank you very much. A lovely story, by the way.
0: <laughs> well, we made it, too. We made it up above the Alpine line and I was not murdered. So obviously. So um, maybe just for beginners and for beginnings, just give us a thumbnail sketch uh, of the man and his story. Who is this person who created this body of work?
3: Well, he used to be seen, I think, primarily as, a, as an Oxford professor. So an an expert in languages, he taught um, English language and literature right back to the Old English epic poem Beowulf um, and specializing in Old English, Middle English, the language of Chaucer, uh, Old Norse, the language of the the Norse myths. Um, My aim with my first book, Tolkien and the Great War, was to kind of reposition him as a war veteran because he was also a soldier in the Battle of the Somme. Um, And he ran signals for a battalion of about 700 men through this most appalling of battles. Um, Then, of course, there are other aspects to him which are equally important. He had a very, very tight uh, family, um, strong bonds and very, very close friendships with people, including C.S. Lewis, who, who later went on to write the Narnia books, I think heavily influenced by Tolkien there. Um, Tolkien was an orphan. Uh, his father died when he was four. His mother died when he was 12. Um, so he put that together with uh, the First World War. And you can see that he was well acquainted with mortality and that kind of hangs in the background of his books. Um, and he kind of because of that, that uh, experience in the, in the war and all the technological change that was going on at the time, the cultural, societal changes. Uh, he kind of straddles uh, old worlds and new worlds i think um so that although people tend to think of him as just being stuck in the past a, a terrible nostalgist i think he was really kind of constantly in dialogue about the the need to adapt versus the need to preserve and and you see this played out in in, in the lord of the rings for example with the elves who are desperate to preserve things of the past, (laughs) um, almost to their own uh, downfall.
0: The well, I'm meditating a bit on him this morning. I mean, anytime you think of a person like this, you think of something new. And I was thinking about the fact that yes, he had all of this incredible body of lore and legend and folklore to draw upon, and he does. And this is a very syncretistic work; it's sort of bringing together a lot of ideas from a lot of legends. But also, and, and there are names that, like Gandalf, that occur elsewhere that he he brings in. But he also does something that I think is is not for the most part present in, in a lot of those very heroic legends, and, and that is that Bilbo and Frodo are more David Copperfield-type characters. They are us. They are not outwardly special. They have no basis for thinking of themselves as heroes or being thought of that way by others. Uh, and you don't see that as much in the old source legends. We can point to certain ex- exceptions. They are examples. You could even point, I think, to the disciples in the New Testament. They are also rather ordinary and flawed uh, people who have to kind of g- gain strength and exceed their own limitations. But mostly— what I think, and particularly pondering your work too, is you know, I mean, they're him, right? They, they, he had as a boy the experience of feeling small and helpless and kind of over challenged by life. Maybe you could comment on that,
3: yeah. And also, uh, as a, as a young adult going off into the wide world into, into a, a world war, which is essentially what the Hobbits and the Lord of the Rings do. Um, so he did actually write a, a, a very m- mythologically templated uh, body of stories uh, from the First World War onwards, which he called, came to call the Silmarillion, in which there are no hobbits. And that, that these stories are very much on the, the, the epic level of myth, and, and that's really the only level they're, they're on. Um, the, the, the great marvel of Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit too. of course, is, is the hobbits themselves. And they, they came along sort of by accident because his desire to tell uh, stories about ancient myth or create his own ancient myths um, collided with his desire to entertain his children. <laughs> and to entertain his children, he created hobbits who are much like himself or like the people that he knew when he was the age his sons now were. So these were, these were based on people of, the, of the, the, the late Victorian era, the turn of the, the century, the end of the 19th century. Um, so, uh, and that's what you see plunged into this very sort of medieval world. And they work for us uh, because they, uh, we, we can identify with them. We can see through their eyes and feel um, through them how strange uh, and marvellous and terrifying this world is
0: you know the the there's a common term these days in the world of science fiction and fantasy of world building uh that term i don't think was around not that way anyway at the time that he's writing this work but he's really you know such a pioneer at it right the people who had to tell the arthurian tales they didn't have to invent that world that was sort of there uh, to, to be taken. I mean, they had to add their own fancy and plot to it. But, um, but he really assembles this world, I mean, in terms of its geography, its topography, its languages, its songs, its, 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 its landscape. I mean, everything is, as I understand it, he kind of built that world first and then populated it. Is that correct?
3: Well no it was a
0: bit more organic than that mm. uh, but
3: but what actually came first was the language so he he invented languages from childhood that was his passion he had this extraordinary sensitivity towards the sounds of language and wanted to emulate his favorite languages by by inventing ones in their mode and also he knew he he understood how languages evolve so you know, uh, British English and American English, for example, we can we can hear right now sound different because they have evolved in different directions over a few centuries. Take that further, um, and in a world where there's no global intercommunications, and languages diverge faster. Tolkien wanted his invented languages to have their own histories, and their own speakers, and stories that they could tell that they could embody. Um, he wanted. Uh, characters, peoples, places that he could use his languages to name. Um, And this is actually one of the keys, I think, to his uh, aura of originality, uh, which almost runs counter to the the very strong sense we have of these being really, you know, primal myths um, that that we recognise. The trick was he did take from Norse mythology, from Greek mythology, from from um, Celtic mythology, from English legend, and so forth, and he mixed things up. But because he had these invented languages, um, he was able to put all these mixed, synthesized things under new names, um, and and therefore that they they seemed deeply original, um, at the same time as seeming deeply sort of archetypal um
0: yeah Yeah, I mean, that's sort of there from the beginning of the stories. I mean, it's certainly people who have only seen the movies. Still, you know that the ring gets thrown into the fireplace uh, at at Bag End and out it comes with this elvish writing on the side of it. And I think Gandalf reads it aloud in this very incantatory way. And it's, I mean, these these languages are very much woven into the plot. They're not freestanding. I mean, another thing he does uh, is... Uh, that his characters sing a lot, and they, they have their, their little songs. Now, we're going to actually hear uh, Tolkien himself uh, singing. Uh, this is, um, uh, um, I, I don't know that I've ever heard his voice before, but here he is uh, singing Sam's "A Rhyme of the Troll.
1: <coughs> a troll sat alone on his seat of stone and munched and mumbled a bare old bone. For many a year he'd gnawed it near, for me it was hard to come by, some by, gum by. In a cave in the hills he dwelt alone, and me it was all to come by. Up came John with his big boots on, says he'd to troll, play what is yon. For it looks like the shin of an Uncle Jim, as should be a loin in graveyard, caveyard, pavyard. This many a year has Jim been gone. And I thought you were lying in graveyard. My lad said troll, this bone I stole. But what be bones that lie in a hole? Thy nuncle was dead as a lump of lead, afore I found his carcass. Arky, Marky, he can spare a bone for a poor old troll. He's got no use for his carcass. (coughs)
0: So uh, so I've been challenged. Uh, well, as we were preparing for this show, I happen to mention that you know sometimes if I'm reading this to a child or to – recently I was reading it to someone who's quite ill. Uh, if I'm reading these books and I come to a song, I'll often sing the song and it turns out that in my head I have made- – made-up tunes for these songs. So, uh, Lily Tyson said that I should sing one here. I'll, I'll do four lines of one here. Here we go. Sing hey, for the bath at the close of the day that washes the weary mud away. A loon is he that will not sing. A water hot is a noble thing. Um, so, uh, forgive me for that. So, so, I think this, this is another part of it, right? That that the old lays, you know, the old stories, the sagas, the skalds, a lot of those were sung, too. And I assume that's part of why he, he wants his characters to sing occasionally?
3: Yes, I think so. But also, you know, he came from a singing culture. Um, you know, First World War soldiers sang as they marched along the road. Um, the Hobbits do that. And he studied, you know, medieval Literature that had all sorts of things other than, you know, epic poems. They they had medieval hymns, lyrics, um, j- just folk songs, and he he was a craftsman. Uh, he was a craftsman in language. He he loved the challenge of of writing uh, words that would fit to a, a singable rhythm, a chantable rhythm. Um, very, often very complex, sometimes really simple, to suit the the uh the 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 scenario to suit the people who are singing it and this is one of the many ways in which he embeds this very sort of three-dimensional sense of culture in middle earth um i want to just just go back to the the end of the question that i failed to answer last time which is uh that he did this he he built the world as he went along and he kept tinkering with it he kept injecting new things into it so one of the things was the poems he would sometimes write Poems for entirely different reasons, and they would be drawn into the orbit of Middle Earth and embedded into *The Lord of the Rings*.
0: Right, and the characters in uh, *In Lord of the Rings* will sometimes share these poems. Uh, or or lays or sagas to kind of make sense of their current situation. You know, there's an old story that's like this. Um, I'm thinking of, I think it's barren, You know, uh, there, there's a, an old story that helps explain the situation that we're in right now, which is exactly how those kinds of stories are used in real life and in real culture. Um, uh, uh, and can, can I just say, yeah. I mean, that is that is actually Tolkien in a nutshell,
3: because. Um, There's there's a wonderful conversation between Frodo and Sam where um, Sam says, don't the great tales never end? Mm -hmm. Because we're still inside that same story that Beren and Luthien were in. And there's a very long millennia of history between them, but there's a, a continuous thread of events that joins them. And I think Tolkien felt that his work was a similar kind of part of a thread that joins us to ancient literature.
0: You know you talked before about Tolkien kind of straddling two sensibilities um, you know the the sensibility of of his moment and the sensibility of, of the past there's a way in which I think he, he he's different uh, there are a lot of ways in which he's different from the modern sensibility but i I would argue and feel free to to uh, put put me in my place but um I wouldn't say that he had no sense of humor, but he has no sense of comedy and no ironic detachment from the work the way almost everything has to have these days. In other words, they're, they're, this is a very, very serious story. There are some comic people in the story and some little bit of comic relief there, but, but not in an ironic way that doesn't take the situation seriously. When you look at the movies, you know, there's an exchange, for example, Gimli, they're up on the wall. and Gimli says, what's happening out there? And Legolas says, shall I describe it to you or would you like to, me to find you a box? I can't imagine his characters saying that to one <laughs> another because it's too comic, right? There's it's it departs too much from the import of the moment. I, I don't know. What's your take?
3: I I think Gimli is kind of it, it, they've taken sort of R two D two and C three PO there a bit, haven't they? Yeah. To, to just have a comic duo. Um, no, that's not in Tolkien. Um, there are characters who, particularly hobbits, who respond to things with humor. Um, there are characters, particularly hobbits. Um, whom Tolkien pokes fun of, uh, you know, the opening chapter of the Lord of the Rings is satirical, really, mm. about this, about this, this fatuous society of, of self-indulgent people, you know, it's not, some people think he just adores hobbits. No, I don't think so. I think he has very mixed feelings about them. Um, but, it, yes, it, it's very important that um, he, he is not an ironist at heart. Um, he he lived in a generation that um was was overwhelmed by irony uh because of the first world war because of the sense that all those uh pre-war values of honor and patriotism um and courage and so on were were vitiated in the trenches they they were rendered worthless because you you couldn't show those things without Uh, Well, in that kind of environment of of appalling, um, passive suffering um, and inability to to act. Um, So I think Tolkien was aware of that. And you see some of that in Lord of the Rings, in the journey of Frodo into Mordor, where he becomes more and more afflicted, you might say, psychologically, um, and less and less able to act. It's Sam who helps him along. It's a real kind of officer and officer's servant. Relationship, but on the other hand, you see um, very sort of non-ironical, very serious treatments of medieval-style action scenes, battles with with flags waving and horns blowing, uh, and tremendously moving. Um, if you if you laugh at it, then you've 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 missed uh, the enchantment of the book completely.
0: I would agree. Um, I also think it's one of his real marvels is the way that he is able to toggle between this almost claustrophobic experience of the, uh, you know, the two hobbits plus, uh, plus Gollum going into Mordor and getting into these all horrible, once again, claustrophobic situations and the loneliness of all that with the, the, the other thing, with the great epic sweep and the there's a lot of swashbuckle in the, all the stuff that's kind of dominated by Aragorn and Legolas and, and Gandalf and Gimli. He does it so well. I wanted to ask about one last thing before we run out of time. And I'm going to start with, in March of 1958... Tolkien attempted a hobbit dinner at a bookstore in Rotterdam, Netherlands, where they served Lord of the Rings-inspired dishes like maggot soup. I'll pass, thank you. Um, And he says he says offers a toast. He says, I look east, west, north, south, and I do not see Sauron, but I see that Saruman has many descendants. We hobbits have against them no magic, weapons, yet, my gentle hobbits, I give you this toast to the hobbits. May, out, may they outlast Saruman's and see spring again in the trees. And, and there's a way in which, you know, for all the fun that it gives us and all the, you know, thrills and spills and, and, and excitement that it, it gives us and drama— there's something very moral about all this, right? It really ultimately is the story about, about a bunch of somewhat cosseted creatures who grow up you know eating many meals a day elevenses and second breakfasts and whatever they're called you know and and who have to toughen up and who have to can kind of take on this these big challenges and then when they come get back from their journey they have to fix their home which has also slid into moral disrepair and and it in, in a way one senses that this man having lived as he did through world war 1 and world war 2 at that point um He's he's got something kind of serious, I think, that he's trying to say, and it's there in that toast. What do you you hear in that toast?
3: Well, um, yes, he wants us to take away a sense of um, hope, um, perseverance uh, in in a world that is full of evils and hardships. um, And to be very skeptical, I think, of power. Organized power, um, uh, corruption in in organizations and in individuals, um, and the impact that they can have on people and on on the planet. I mean, it didn't speak in terms of the planet, obviously, but you know, the the, the natural world is 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 really at the heart of um, Tolkien's creativity. So that's, I think, one of the one of the great messages. I, I do think that Tolkien's um, Uh, been a big influence on the environmental movement.
0: Mm -hmm. Oh absolutely I think on Prince Charles in particular I think they have very similar uh, uh, goals there in terms of preservation and stuff like that All right, we have to stop there. It has been so much fun to talk to you and so uh, enlightening uh, to talk to you. Uh, We've been talking to John Garth, the author of The Worlds of J.R.R. Tolkien, The Places That Inspired Middle Earth and Tolkien and the Great War among other books. We will take a break, we will come back we will go to the movies.
4: Of slavery in the U.S., we don't usually think of Connecticut, but slavery happened here. The probate inventory mentions three cows, two barns, one enslaved Negro woman, and one Indian boy. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten.
2: Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture.
4: Connecticut's own Jacques Pepin is a culinary icon. When you make a contribution to Connecticut Public today, you can experience a once-in-a-lifetime dinner with the acclaimed PBS chef and author on Monday, May 6th at the gorgeous Oceanfront Madison Beach Hotel in Madison, Connecticut, sponsored by Isana Plastic Surgery Center and MedSpa and Fuchs Financial. For tickets, visit ctpublic.org Pepin. It
5: began with the forging of the Great Rings. Three were given to the Elves, immortal, wisest and fairest of all beings. Seven to the Dwarf Lords, great miners and craftsmen of the Mountain Halls. And nine, nine rings were gifted to the race of men who above all else desire power. For within these rings was bound the strength and will to govern each race. But they were all of them deceived. For another ring was made. In the land of Mordor, in the fires of Mount Doom, the Dark Lord Sauron forged in secret a master ring to control all others. And into this ring he poured his cruelty, his malice, And his will to dominate all life. One ring to rule them all.
0: And so it began 20 years ago, December. But this is the year of the ring. Uh, And the reason you know that is because, of course, you are a devoted reader of Polygon. The person overseeing the year of the ring, the 20th anniversary year of the beginning of those movies, Susanna Polo, uh, the entertainment editor, is joining us now. Um, So first of all, welcome to the conversation. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Uh, I'm really enjoying your, your writing about this a lot. And everybody who's interested in this, uh, you know, if you absolutely need to know the truth about elven mortal- immortality, you absolutely – you've got to get on Polygon right away. So, um, every, so every aspect is going to be explored. That's clear. Uh, and, and good, I say. So you're young. You're younger than I am anyway. So, you know, I mean, I sort of went to the movie – the first movie with my – teeth clenched saying, don't screw yourself, please, please don't screw up this book that I love. And and they didn't. They did a great job. Um, You probably went in with a different set of issues, if any issues at all.
4: Yeah, I mean, like I, I, I the movies are coming out all through the period in which I was in high school, which will just firmly date me from the mm-hmm. whole audience. Um, and I'd, I'd already read the books, um, but my brother, who's much younger than I am, wasn't old enough to read them yet. And so we spent all three of those years reading the books out loud to him, which was a great sort of education and contrast. Um, and and I think like most people, I was, you know, obviously immediately taken with um, this great Epic visual and audio sort of extravaganza of um, of just taking the story very seriously and not really worrying that anybody might think it was silly to be following a bunch of barefoot uh, guys around New Zealand.
0: <laughs> well, that's a reductionist way of talking about it. Anyway, <laughs> um, so yeah, we should talk about some of the things that are great about the movies. You know, the, uh, like I would argue. Actually, we can play a clip to illustrate what I think is maybe the best thing for me about the movies. Uh, So let's hear B1Cat.
5: I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had
1: happened. So do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. There are other forces at work in this world, Frodo, besides the evil. Bilbo was meant to find the ring, in which case you also were meant to have it. And that is an encouraging thought.
0: So, I don't know, Susanna, for me, having read those books many times uh, and imprinted them like the baby duck that I was... Uh, it, it says something that now my idea of Gandalf is Ian McKellen. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, he he took something that was immortal and iconic and, and on the page and made it him, which I think is a remarkable achievement.
4: Yeah. And and I think the, the choice of actors for the Lord of the Rings movies, I think, cannot be understated. You know, it's this wealth of um, a lot of people that we consider household names now who, you know, Orlando Bloom was plucked out of film school. Elijah Wood was, you know— kind of, you know, considered to be like a, a, you know, I think he was just aging out of like being a child actor at the time. And then you have this whole wealth of character actors and guys from British theater who walk in the room and they put on their Theoden costume or their Denethor costume. They go, oh, I see. Yes, I'm Lear. This is a (laughs) fantasy world. But what I'm doing here is I am holding all of the gravitas of this fantasy society on my shoulders. And I'm going to make the audience believe that I am grieving my son and that I, I, I have deep grief over how my, my lands have been corrupted and I have been swayed and, and to communicate that in very few scenes and immortalize these characters. Um, and I think that's a testament in, in part to um, that, you know, blockbusters today tend to, you know, look at the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies and they they wink a lot, mm-hmm. you know. They, they let the audience in on how, you know, like, yeah, we know this is kind of silly, like... You know, um, he's a guy dressing up like a bat. Mm-hmm. Um, and isn't it theatrical? Um, but the Lord of the Rings, Ra- Peter Jackson's and and all the production of the Lord of the Rings was very much, you know, they talk all the time in their special features about movies. Our attitude was we were making a historical drama um, and we were taking it all very seriously and it was going to be earnest. And I think that attitude is really what um, uh, holds up um, the audience suspension of belief and gets you invested in everything that's happening.
0: Right. There are times where that resolve weakens and maybe even falters and crumbles. And, and I think the movies pay a big price. I, I would say the maybe the worst example of that is the dwarf tossing joke uh, at Helm's <laughs> Deep. You know, I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's a very modern joke. First of all, it's a joke. And as we you just said, and we said in the first segment, Tolkien didn't make ironic jokes about his material for exactly the reason that you just said. To me, mm. that was that, that was a very weak choice. I mean, it's also a little bit offensive uh, to, you know, I mean, we know what door tossing is uh, in in other situations, too. I was kind of surprised. I guess you make that many hours of film, you're going to make some human mistakes. huh?
4: Well, sure and and i'm certainly on i'm on the team of gimli's a little too silly in the movies mm-hmm. i am a big fan of dwarves and fantasy in general and i would like to see a little bit more respect given um i do i would disagree with you that i think he is kind of a comedy character in the books but not because he's too silly mm-hmm. because he's very stubborn and grumpy and i think tolkien often leans into that to get gimli in arguments with people like Aomer or elrond or or to get gimli a little nervous when when when, um, Legolas gets very excited about the forest that has just showed up outside of Helm's Deep and wants to ride right into it and say hello to the trees. And Gimli doesn't understand why we should be riding right into this haunted forest.
0: So I'll give you my – I have a list of gripes about the movies, although I do like them quite a bit. I'll give you just <laughs> one other – although just as long as we're mentioning Gimli. Really, they've got a $770 kajillion dollar budget. They can't hire two separate actors for Gimli and Treebeard, but that's a separate issue. Um, the, um, my gripe is about the third movie where, in, mm-hmm. in fact, this army of the dead, which can harm but cannot be harmed, shows up for what is the kind of epic climactic battle – and, and, you know, kind of just changes the odds so drastically that it really robs it, I think, of its, its heroic content that does not happen in the books. And when I watched that, I thought, oh, well, you know, I mean, Aragorn and everybody else, they're kind of over-assisted at this point where it's not even a fair fight. I thought that was a really bad decision.
4: Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, you know, you're, I, I'm with you on they're having some problems with The Return of the King if we want to get real fanny uh, fanish about it. <laughs> Um, uh, I've never I love the Lord of the Rings movies they're very you know sort of central to my growing up I've never quite given I, if I met Peter Jackson I would shake his hand and I would I would love to ch- chat with him but I, I don't think I've forgiven him for cutting the scouring of the Shire mm-hmm. out of the movies and mm-hmm. I understand there's only so much time and movies are, are a different artistic language than novels um, but I still feel just very centrally that that's that's the whole ending of the story. It totally is. So, and it's a yeah, young. Yeah, at, at its yeah. heart, The Lord of the Rings is not an overt, um, it, it is a, always a little bit of tra- a tragedy. Yep. Um, and when you remove the scouring, it removes a lot of that. But we, we wanted to talk about the movies, and I don't want to get too much into, yeah. <laughs> into well, going back to the books. I,
0: I wanted to also talk to you about so when you were uh, a young, uh, you were in high school uh, and you had read the books. So you read the books, and the books, you know, I mean, they don't have the book's strong women characters. Uh, Galadriel is the closest thing. In 54, the Scottish poet Edward Edward Muir started reviewing the books, and by 55, when he wrote about Return of the King, he said all the characters are boys masquerading as adult heroes and will never come to puberty. Hardly one of them knows anything about women. Um, and so for the movies, Jackson's got to do something, right? I mean, he, he it can't be uh, that way, <laughs> And, and so he beefs up the role of Arwen. and gives it to to Liv Tyler. Uh, he makes a stronger character among the Rohirrim. Um, I, I don't know. Give us your thoughts about all that.
4: Um, I, well, I think it's definitely uh, a very important sort of um, part of translating Tolkien's work mm. to film. Um, yeah. And if only because, you know, throwing Glorfindel in there for like 10 minutes, like, yes, you should just give that to a character that the viewers are actually going to remember and need to be introduced to like Arwen. Um, but I'm not, I think I go back and forth on, on Eowyn I think is a, is a really big touchstone for, Mm. um, for, uh, women and female identifying people who watched the Lord of the Rings movies. Um, and I think that she's also a, a really nuanced example of Tolkien's feelings on, um, on women that were that were different from sort of you know we look at his contemporary C.S. Lewis who are writing um, you know uh, that Aslan telling Susan that war is only truly ugly when women are involved and 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 Eowyn, when you really dig into her character in the books her her arc isn't about how women aren't allowed to fight in the Rohirrim it's about how she is a member of the royal family and the. Her, her, her uncle and her brother have to, they're, they're war leaders, they have to go off to fight, and that leaves her as the only other member of the royal family who has to stay at home with the people who do not go off to fight. And her problem with that is not that she feels that it's unworthy or that it's necessarily sexist, it's that she wants a noble death. Everybody at that point in the Lord of the Rings believes that the world is ending and she doesn't want to die defending, you know, speared at a, at the by a hearth. She wants to die in glorious battle with her family. Um, and she only gets over that once she accepts the idea that there might be a future and that there might be something other to hope for. She might be able to hope for something in her life other than just choosing the manner of her death. Um, and that's something much more nuanced than. I want not know if uh, anything you can do, I can do better. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 it's you know like Tolkien also has other female characters outside of the Lord of the Rings, which obviously don't get into the movies, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but he has, and even in his own life, he uh, because he married so young um, and became a professor so young, he was put in the position of being a, a married professor who could um, without uh freaking people out could mentor female students and he wound up mentoring a lot of young women who were going to oxford and taking english and you know um studying english um who became very close family friends um and so he was not you know we we, we think of you know as, as your last guest was saying we think of him as being this very old-fashioned guy um but he was very much in the position that women should be educated women can do things that men can do Um, But he also, and I think this speaks to, you know, sort of the read of Lord of the Rings as being about um, boys who never reach puberty, um, is that he also in his personal life felt, you know, that he, you know, maybe he and his wife didn't necessarily need to have a lot of uh, interests in common, that they loved each other very much, but what they, their their relationship was built on building a, putting a house together and building a family together and loving each other, not necessarily having the same intellectual pursuits. Mm. Um, And he also very much valued like male company. Um, (laughs) And, and so you can sort of see that, and you can see both of those things in Lord of the Rings, right? You can see sort of Eowyn um, having this, this, uh, these goals that aren't really, that isn't, when you dig into it, isn't necessarily about the equality between the sexes, but about this, greater theme of what war and battle and being a warrior is. Um, And then you also have this story that has just very, very few female characters in it. And that is very much about relationships between men, whether that is um, brothers, um, friends, you know the, the 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 king or the leader mm-hmm. and, and and the people who look up to him. Just examining those relationships.
0: Okay, before we run out of time, and I should say I want to leave some time for our final episode, which uh, talks about another relationship, Sam and Frodo, mm-hmm. and how it is being re-understood uh, these days, at least by some people. Uh, it's a fascinating question, uh, and I just also want to say if you're interested in any of this stuff, you really need to check out Polygon's Year of the Ring, and you will find out everything uh, and and everything and more. You'll find out which actor didn't like to fly in helicopters and would hike to the locations early in the morning in his costume. Uh, you'll find out everything you ever wanted to know. So, um, but before we do that, just very quickly, we now know there's something coming down the pipe. It's from Amazon. Just give us a sense of what you know and, uh, from whatever's been released so far. What do we know about this project?
4: Sure. So it comes out of sort of the interesting state that uh, the rights to adapting Tolkien's books are in right now, which is that um, no one, no, there isn't a movie company out there that owns the rights to the Silmarillion, but the people who own the rights to the Return of the King are allowed to use the material that's in the appendices of the Return Mm -hmm. of the King, which is a very, like, uh, sort of broad timeline of the entire history of the Middle Earth, everything that happened before Frodo's era, and the Amazon series is seeking to sort of explore the few, thou- few thousand year era of what's called the Second Age, which is every which is what happened bef- right before the end of the Second Age is the very first scene in the Fellowship of the Ring movie um, with that big battle. And where Sildur decides that he's not going to throw the ring in the magma, that's the moment that marks the end of the Second Age. And um, so the Amazon series, we're not really sure specifically what it's going to be about. It seems like it's probably going to take place over generations of of human life on this island nation called Numenor, which are the people who eventually become um, Aragorn's line of kings and eventually found the nation of Gondor. Um, And they have this whole arc in the second age of Sauron, back when he could still take physical form, and you know, as Tolkien says, he's very fair in appearance, and he's very skillful in manipulation. Um, that Sauron slowly corrupts this very noble Numenorian society into worshiping a dark god, and eventually um, trying to invade the home of the gods. Hmm. Um, and that goes very poorly for them. But there are some survivors, and they found, you know, they are Aragorn's ancestors, and. Um, and yeah, so we're, there's, there we we know that people have been cast. We don't really know who they're playing. We don't know who which of them is playing Sauron, which I'm very interested to see. Right.
0: So that's um, all, all reasons why we have to go on living. Uh, exactly, we can't possibly miss this. Yes. Susanna Polo, uh, entertainment editor for Polygon. Check out the whole package they've got there. It's really pretty incredible. Uh, we want to spend some time uh, here at the end talking about the relationship between Frodo and Sam. Something we've all always noticed about it, but let's really talk about it.
5: May it be an evening star shines down upon you. May it be when darkness falls, your heart will be.
0: Oh, I already hate that we don't have enough time for this, but so I will quickly thank uh, technical producer Kat Pastor who makes everything happen so wonderfully here in the studio with me uh, and celebrity producer Lily Tyson, who is the producer of this episode. So um, we're going to close with a conversation with Molly Ostertag, a graphic novelist and TV writer. She's also the author of a terrific article, article Queer Readings of, uh, Lord of The Lord of the Rings Are Not Accidents. It's also in Polygon uh, and whatever. You should read it. If you're interested in any of this at all, whatever attitude you go in with, it will be slightly or drastically changed when you come out of reading it. So, but, you know, Molly, first of all, welcome to our conversation.
2: Hi! Thank you so much for having me. I'm. This is my favorite
0: topic to talk about. <laughs> so, I mean, if you read the book or you see the movie, I mean, it, it, you don't have to be Freud or or anything like that. Just sort of say, oh wow, there's a, they have a very special relationship, Frodo and Sam. So, yeah, yes. yes, it's master and servant, but there's a lot of talk about about love. There are kisses exchanged uh, in, in the books, uh, I, I believe. And, Lots of
2: hand-holding. A lot of hand, a lot of handholding. Near constant. <laughs> yes.
0: Sl- one of them sleeping on the other's breast in a time yes. of, you know, and and. I think everybody, like, I read this in the late 60s and I thought, well, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I guess that's just the way they are. But that, that it, it really does demand of us a, a little bit more than, well, I guess that's just the way they are. So tell us a little bit about how, how you look at this.
2: Yeah. So I've been a fan of Lord of the Rings since I was read it when I was really young. And then the movies came out when I was a little older. Um, and I, I remembered it sort of being the, the joke at the time. Like, I was in middle school. I remember, like, that was the time when gay was this, like, like derogatory term and I remember people being like oh those movies are so gay and then uh, I got really I sort of revisited the story last year during the pandemic as an escape and as a now like openly gay person I found myself connecting so deeply to the relationship between Frodo and Sam I felt like it was this like same gender relationship that really spoke to me in a way that things rarely do Um, but I was still like okay that's just the movies Um, and then I sat down and I reread the book And it was so textual in the book. And so the article on Polygon is kind of a culmination of me engaging with this side of the book, trying to learn everything I can, trying to read other people's takes on this, um, making art and making writing, and then also just like digging into Tolkien's history himself and the the context of queerness at the time that he was writing. And so I kind of, people sometimes react very strongly. They really don't like this read of of this specific relationship, um, but I find it really meaningful. And so I had a lot of fun with this essay, kind of really digging into why I think this and being like, it's not just a you know, a fan fiction interpretation, it's like really is textually in the book. And it's like I, I think I made a pretty good argument for it being an intentional choice on Tolkien's
0: part. Really? To have Frodo yes. and
2: Sam be romantically involved. Yes,
0: and some of the stuff that you get that's kind of extra uh textual, you know, some of the stuff that Tolkien said in letters that, you know, his is the scene he was most moved by in his books was in fact that scene of uh, Frodo falling asleep on Sam's yeah. breast and the the way that they comfort each other with their arms and bodies and, yeah. and and all this kind of stuff. Let's just talk a little bit about the end. So spoiler Somehow or other, you don't know how, <laughs> how things end. But so, you know, there's a, the ending, basically, you know, Frodo goes to the Grey Havens where somehow or other he's going to be taken to a place where mortality is transcended. Sam kind of understands that he can't go too. He accompanies him at least to the boat. Uh, and when he gets home, he's married now, he says to Rosie, well, I, I'm back, or well, I'm home, or something like that. Yeah. I, should, I should know the exact line. And so well, that's that's exactly. kind of, yeah, that's that's kind of a straddling of the worlds, right? There's sort of a way in which, You know, he's made it clear that really, given his brothers, he'd get on the boat and go with Frodo. But he also has chosen that he to have a wife and to have a family, to have children. So say say more about how you interpret that kind of straddling.
2: Yeah, so I think it's fascinating. I find it. People always sort of bring up Rosie as like, here's why you're wrong. And I actually think that the relationship is really interesting to me. It really speaks to uh, closeted queerness, especially in these like like this sort of like wartime society that Tolkien grew up in. So um, two, two essays that I was really inspired by are Cruising in Fairyland by Christopher Vaccaro and On Fairy Stories by Valerie Rohi. And those both kind of explore this very Tolkien idea of adventure and of adventure almost as a metaphor for kind of being able to act on queer desire. And so it's, he, it's this theme that turns up again and again in his books of like, men in these kind of rural societies that they stand out from a little bit longing to go away and longing to travel and longing for something more and then getting to have it in one way or another and like the adventure itself is usually not pleasant but there is something magical about it and often that magic is a bond that they form with another man and of course they can't stay in that fantasy world they have to come home um, eventually and sort of return to their real lives and so I think there's there's something very very striking to me in that story of Frodo and Sam they are on this horrible journey it is so taxing they are not having a wonderful time like Bilbo had in The Hobbit they are having an awful time but there is still this relationship that can flourish between them because they are outside of society. There's a really great line In one of the scenes, it's in this tower of Cirith Ungol, when Sam has found Frodo. Frodo's been tortured. He's naked. Sam rescues him, holds him, and Frodo falls asleep, like, on his chest, basically. And there's a line where it says, Sam could have sat like that in endless happiness, but it was not allowed. And that, to me, is the it it hits a very deep queer part of me, where I think a lot of people who know what it's like to have a have a a crush or like have emotional romantic feelings and have this intense relationship with someone of the same gender but you you cherish these moments that you get to be close with them even if they are in other ways the worst moments of your life and so Sam is in this terrible situation they're in the middle of Mordor it's the worst everything is the worst and he is still happy because he gets to hold Frodo to his breast but he knows that he can't stay there forever and so to me that really is kind of that line kind of is the key to to understanding this sort of like torn in two different directions that and, is going on with Sam Gamgee.
0: We're almost out of time, uh, but some I know the, I could talk and, about this I for know. so long. <laughs> and some of the other things you share in the essay, I mean, there's I didn't even know about this. I think it's a, like a a, a a later chapter that wasn't used in the book or something like that, where Sam now has a teenage daughter and she says she ca- says to him that Frodo was his treasure. Um I mean. Yes.
2: Yes and she again yeah, that's Eleanor his his first daughter um with Rose and he she specifically so she's talking about Celeborn and Galadriel Celeborn is Galadriel's wife Galadriel went to the Grey Havens with Frodo Celeborn stayed behind and so she's talking about I understand how you must feel because you must feel like Celeborn feels yeah. at the loss of your treasure and it's just it's so textual like it's it's just there and it's in this unpublished epilogue that Tolkien Wanted to publish, but people were sort of like, it's too sentimental, and so I, I find it really compelling. These like, sort of like like things that just shine through before they've gotten quite edited out.
0: Right. I mean, really, the big lift isn't to believe in the, you know, the homoerotic or whatever we want to call it relationship. Homo romantic. Homo romantic. Thank you. Yeah. Homo romantic, much better. Homo romantic relationship. The big lift is to try to deny it. It's much harder to make yes. a case for kind of screening it out uh, <laughs> than it is to including it. Well, anyway, read the whole essay, please, if you're listening right now. It's Queer Readings of the Lord of the Rings Are Not Accidents uh, by Molly Ostertag. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you. Have a good day.
0: All right. And it's time for me to go home and say to my dog, I'm back. (laughs) I'm back. But the road goes winding ever on. Uh, We'll be doing other shows for you. And we've got one on the next day and many days after that.